put your own oxygen mask on before assisting that child next to you. It's what flight attendants tell you before a plane takes off. It's also what the Government Accountability Office is, in effect, telling the Office of Personnel Management. OPM has a number of internal skill gaps of its own that could hinder its ability to help other agencies with their skills gaps. Here with more of what GAO said, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And what are the skills gaps that OPM needs to address, like how to address skills gap? Is that a skills gap? The report talks about a couple of different skills gaps that OPM does need to look at. They're a bit broad, but they focus on project management, leadership development, and data analytics, for example. GAO says that addressing some of these internal issues will help OPM try to fully address government-wide skills gaps as well. Generally, skills gaps are either gaps in staffing, so maybe you don't have the employees needed to fill that niche, or it'll be a competency gap. So maybe you have the employees, but you need to give them the right training. GAO said that OPM has done some of the work to train and hire staff, but they haven't created what is called an action plan to manage those efforts. That's really important, according to GAO, because when you look at the broader landscape of current skills gaps in the government, there are several. So there's HR specialists, acquisition and cybersecurity are some of the broader skills gaps that a lot of agencies are facing. GAO said that there's not a clear way that OPM is trying to identify and address these internal skills gaps first. Sure. They're like the shoemaker's children, only the shoemaker isn't very good. So not much it can pass on to the children. And what are some of the challenges that make it so hard for OPM to close these gaps? This has been something that GAO has been looking into for quite a while, strategic human capital management, as they call it. It's been on GAO's high risk list since 2001. So that's over 20 years now. There are issues with OPM, for example, with staffing shortages and some issues just trying to address those skills gaps. And GAO said that back a couple of years ago with the proposed merger between GSA, the General Services Administration, and OPM, that may have worsened OPM's ability to confront some of these skills gaps. Even though that didn't ultimately happen, there are some lingering effects at OPM, for example, staff turnover. But GAO also said that the Office of Personnel Management has made progress for human capital management, which sounds a little bit ironic. So what are the positives here? GAO said that the president's management agenda under the Biden administration focuses a lot on workforce improvements, so strengthening and empowering the federal workforce. That's the top priority of the PMA. The GAO report also talked about the Chico Council, the Chief Human Capital Officers Council, and how they're trying to implement better collaboration between different agency Chicos. They held a public meeting a couple months ago, for example, that discussed or highlighted some of the reforms or pilots that are going on across government. OPM has also issued skills-based hiring guidance. They've created a remote jobs filter on USA Jobs. So there's all these piecemeal or small changes that OPM has, in GAO's words, made progress in the past couple of years. But of course, there's still more needed. Well, that's what GAO always says. There's more needed. And what are some of the things that OPM 
GM has to do now? What's their medicine they've got to swallow here? The top recommendation from GAO was to create an action plan. What that actually means is looking at where are the skills gaps, identifying what they are, and then making a clear plan for how to correct or address them, create a way to monitor the symptoms over time to see how things improve. And beyond creating this action plan, it'll be equally important to look at the actual execution of it. That's according to Ron Sanders, who is a former chairman of the Federal Salary Council and former associate director for HR policy at OPM. That doesn't happen overnight, but it starts with a policy. It starts with a a pronouncement that says this is what we're going to do. So much of this depends on leadership, policy and execution. You know, you can make your pronouncements tomorrow and then execution may take some time. That's the action plan. It needs both. It doesn't just need, oh, we'll close these gaps by posting vacancies and hoping for the best. We used to call that post and pray. Yeah, that sounds like Ms. Ahuja. Get it in gear here already. The report also says something about what Chico's themselves think that OPM could do better. What are they saying? Agency Chico's said recruitment and workforce planning were the two biggest pain points that they need to focus on when trying to address skills gaps that are more government-wide or specific to other agencies that aren't OPM. They also said that there's challenges like competition with the private sector, that's one that we hear a lot, budget uncertainty and differences in compensation that makes it more difficult to close the skills gaps. So in response, they are saying that OPM needs to offer more workplace flexibilities and try to streamline or clarify some of the guidance that they put out to try to reduce what they say is administrative burdens on staff. But there are a lot of changes that can help. Special salary rates can help, such as through cybersecurity. And many people, even Kieran Huja herself, have said that they won't hold their breath for government-wide civil service workforce reforms. It's going to be something that kind of happens in smaller chunks. Unless you want to turn blue. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, Sanders explained a little bit more why as well. I think so much of this comes down to leadership. In my view, we passed an inflection point more than a decade or so ago with the bulk of civil service reforms taking place at at an agency level. They're agency-specific, agency-centric. They're not sweeping government-wide reforms, and, and yet OPM is still geared for the latter. The need is still there. Nobody is holding their breath for government-wide reform, but uh, agency-specific reforms are there for the asking. Not an easy ask, but still uh, much more doable than something government-wide. And therefore, what's next for OPM in Sanders and everyone else's view? OPM generally agreed with what GAO recommended to change to try to address some of these skills gaps. But their Chico, Carmen Garcia, said there are other efforts underway already, such as using shared certificates and adding more remote work eligible positions within OPM. But they said that coming up, they're planning to conduct what they call a human capital review this spring and then developing and implementing an action plan based on that. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges 
and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for 
young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.